Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Man, these things are corrupted goblins of the night. (laughs) They're so wild, aren't they? How big is the Nazi beetle collecting community? Big enough... That's not a Venn diagram I thought we'd be discussing. <laughs> Welcome to How Many Geese. If this is your first episode, this is quite often what it's like. Roddy, I'll be honest. I don't know if this is a topic or a rant, but there's something that increasingly has really annoyed me, or is annoying me more and more and more, the more I read about it and think about it and i'm interested in your opinion and that of the listeners as well okay this is something i want to share and talk about i want to talk about the names that we give to species okay i'm listening (laughs) (laughs) there are a lot of amazing great and crazy names out there on the show we've mentioned hellbenders yes and basilisks yes there are things out there called like diabolical nightjar Yep. Like, there are loads of fantastic names out there. The satanic leaf-tailed gecko. I mean, yeah. Come off it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not coming for those names. They're great names. Okay. I want to talk about animals that are named after people. Okay. So, to explain, for anyone who doesn't know, before we delve into this, how species naming works, because we all speak different languages all over the world, the common names of animals, the animal, you know, the way that we might talk about them, they're all different in different languages. But then we also have the scientific names of those animals, which is often derived from Latin or Greek, but sometimes Chinese or whatever. Uh, And that's the name that's used right across the world. So to give you an example, every language has a different word for wolf, Mm -hmm. but scientifically speaking, all across the world, that animal is known as Canis lupus. Okay. Okay. Now, in trying to find some examples to specifically highlight with what I want to talk about here, I came across a huge list of animals that were named after people. And it was separated into the time that those people were alive. So I've gone back and found a few examples uh, just to talk about some animals that are named after people. Now, some animals are named after rulers from the places that they were found. Shatterproof. So. <laughs> Shatterproof squirrel. <laughs> That's, uh, isn't that the fact that they can't die off yeah. of falling off a building? <laughs> So, some are named after the rulers of the places that they're found. So, for example, you've got King Montezuma. Oh, sorry, Emperor Montezuma. Ninth Emperor of the Aztec Empire. And you've got an animal called the Montezuma oropendula. And the oropendula is a type of bird named after Montezuma because it lives, you know, in the similar region. Yep. You've also got Eleonora's falcon, Falco Eleonore, which is described from specimens that were captured in Sardinia and named after Eleanor of Arborea, queen and national heroine of Sardinia, who, in 1392, became the first ruler in history to grant protection to hawk and falcon nests against illegal hunters. So, All right. go salute to you. Big fan of Eleonora. Eleanor of uh, Arborea, and she has the Eleanor's Eleanor. falcon named after her. Lovely. Uh, more examples. There's Arrhenius Washingtonii. Washingtonii, a spider whose type specimen was collected on Mount Washington, named yeah. after George. Was that named after the guy or named after the mountain? Mm, good point. I guess it's named after the mountain, which is named after yeah. the guy. Yeah. Uh, you've got Drydudella Nefertiti. Oh. A wasp named after the ancient Egyptian queen Nefertiti, as it was described from specimens collected in Egypt. Lovely. So once again, people connected to places. Um, you've got a scorpion fly named after the Native American woman Sacagawea, who helped Lewis and Clark on their expedition across North America because it was found in some of the rivers that she helped them navigate as they were getting across North America. I feel she deserves more than oh, a scorpion, than a scorpion fly. fly. Uh, yeah, that's well, a quite okay. <laughs> Genghis Khan has got a dinosaur and a termite named after him that came from Mongolia. All right, yeah. William Shakespeare has a bacteria named after him that was isolated in Stratford-upon-Avon, where he was born. Okay. I'm sort of judging. I'm, I don't know what, like, framework I'm judging them on, but I am judging them. Well, this, this is the point. This yeah. is exactly the point. Okay. Ernest Shackleton has a sea urchin named after him that was collected in Antarctica by his Nimrod expedition. Mm-hmm. 
And then we've got a couple of other location-based names here that aren't named after people from that place, okay? You'll see what I mean with this first one. So you've got Calamatropha dagame, which is a species of moth named after Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama. Mm. The species is native to Mozambique, where da Gama was the first European explorer to arrive in, 19, in, in 1498, marking the start of the Portuguese colonization of the country. Which, if you're someone from Mozambique and a moth is found in your country, and they decide to name it after <laughs> Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the people of Mozambique. D- God, God <laughs> forbid. <laughs> but I could see why there might be some, you know, why that might not be the best thing. Arthur Conan Doyle yep. has a pterosaur named after him. The pterosaur was found in Brazil, where, as he wrote The Lost World, the book, which is the book set around a professor finding prehistoric animals still alive on a plateau in South America. So he gets a pterosaur named after him that was found in Brazil because he set the lost world in the rainforests of South America. Yeah, I think I can see where this is going because that feels tenuous and bullshit. Oh, if you think that's tenuous. <laughs> so we've got animals. So animals can be named after people and their relation to places, but they can also be named after traits of the people that they're named after. So, for example, you've got a genus of birds in the flycatcher family that are called Attila. Now, mm-hmm. they're very markedly predatory and aggressive for their size, hence their scientific and common names, which refer to Attila the Hun. Right. So you've got the Attila flycatchers, once again, named after whatever. Uh, you have, this has got a very long Latin name, Eleutherodactylus amadeus, named after Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's a frog, which when you put its call onto like an audio spectrogram, the little shapes that it makes look like musical notes like as though someone's drawn out musical notes so when you record its call and put it on an audiogram it looks a bit like musical notes so that gets named after mozart do you think these scientists think they're being clever just just wait just wait (laughs) a couple of other um historical names just to throw in there before we move on to some more modern stuff Aberapax San Martini, named after Jose de San Martin, one of the leaders of South America's successful struggle for independence from Spain. It's a tapeworm found on, oh, found on rays. Damn. This one, I actually think it's quite cool. Blastobotrys da Vinciae, yep. a species of yeast <laughs> discovered growing on Leonardo da Vinci's artwork, Portrait of a Man in Red Chalk, which is believed to be a self-portrait that he made of himself, obviously, in 1510. That one, I'm going to be honest, I don't hate. Yeah, same. But it, it has also been found in many other places, but one of the places it's been found is on his portrait of a man Yeah, uh, in red shirt. Again, I'm still not entirely sure what the kind of judgment criteria is I'm doing, but that one I don't hate. <laughs> yeah, I just want, listener, Roddy, I just want your knee-jerk reactions to these. I just want you to judge them in your own way. Okay. This one... It'll be harshly. So... <laughs> Sally Dodon Leonidas, okay? Yep. Now, Leonidas Could refers... Like a type of spinach <laughs> named after the 300 guy. <laughs> Leonidas refers to the Spartan king, yep. Leonidas, who heroically fought a million-man Persian army with only 300 soldiers. The battle, in which he lost his life, took place in the narrow pass of Thermopylae. This species is a fish... Endemic to the rivers of northern Argentina. So it's not... Like, why? Why? Why is it... What's the link? What's the link? But anyway, this is where it really starts to grind my gears when we get to the modern age, okay? Now, you will know, as will many people listening, that our Lord and Saviour, Sir David Attenborough, yeah. has many species named after him. Yeah. In fact, when I was doing my research, he had his own page. Yeah. Like, he just had his full own page as there are almost 50 different species named after Sir David. Has he got the most things named after him? Yes, I believe so. Anyone ever? That, as far as I could find, yes. That's cool. But it's not just him with a lot. Barack Obama's got three fish, a couple of spiders, an ant, a sea slug, a horsehair worm, a leaf hopper, a lizard, a South American bird, and a beetle, among other things. <laughs> among other things? <laughs> what's, what's left? <laughs> Libraries, I guess. <laughs> Princess Sarindhorn of Thailand also has loads, as does the president of the UAE. He's got loads. Like, as I was scrolling down this list... Princess Sarindhorn of Thailand and the president of UAE were were just coming up loads. They've just got loads, absolutely loads. And I'm going to say that as we get to the modern modern age, some of the justifications get a little bit weaker. Okay. Okay. So we've got Duvalius Djokovicii, 
which is a carabid beetle found in the in an underground pit in Mount Povlen, Serbia, named after tennis player Novak Djokovic due to its speed, strength, flexibility, and ability to survive in a difficult environment. So I was I went to Serbia last year, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say they're a fan of their <laughs> of their national hero <laughs> yeah Novak Djokovic like just going around the place like pretty much every he seemed to endorse like you'd go past a bus stop where he was selling washing detergent and then the next bus stop he was endorsing this and then the next but you know like <laughs> right. Djokovic tires Djokovic you know presented by Djokovic so if that beetle was discovered by a team of proud Serbian scientists okay I can Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, that's good. I can see there being a um <laughs> a theme. Okay, great. Well, and ju- I, 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 just to be 100% transparent, I loved my time in Serbia. Yeah. Like I'm not put but my god, were they proud of Djokovic. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got Skaptia Beyoncé. Okay. Beyoncé, Beyoncé. Yeah. Uh, a fly named after Beyoncé because of the unique dense golden hairs on its abdomen. I don't know enough about Beyonce's abdomen to know whether she's got unique, <laughs> dense, golden hairs. But I am not sure how to take that. Also, surely if you're going to name anything after Beyonce, you're naming a bee. Mm. Why are you naming a fly after... Okay. Yeah. Yep. Next. Well, on a similar note, Alioides Shakirae. Shakirae. Whatever this... This thing's hips better... <laughs> is a parasitic wasp... Oh, no. ...that causes the host caterpillar... To wiggle. <laughs> to bend and twist its abdomen in various ways. Come on. And Shakira is also famous for uh, belly dancing. I, so. I'm going to say I almost got that. You did? No, you very yeah. much almost okay. got that. Nice. Um, but when it comes to wasps, Shakira shouldn't feel special because Lady Gaga, Stephen Colbert, Alan DeGeneres, Jimmy Fallon, John Stewart, Diego Maradona, Brad Pitt, Sachin Tendulkar, Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, James May, the band Muse, Metallica, Philippe the Seventh King of Belgium all have wasps too. <laughs> How do the Top Gear trio have them? Damn. This is my point. Okay. Right? There's also a wasp named after Idris Elba with the genus name Idris and the species name Elba. Come on. So its species name is just Idris Elba. The wasp is called Idris Elba. <laughs> the scientist who named it did say that the wasp might prove to be a Heimdall-like protector for many crops because it parasitizes the eggs of the painted bug. Uh, hang and, he, on. and he obviously played Heimdall in Thor. Yeah, but... So that's enough of a link to name an entire animal that has been honed over millions of years but, what, after an actor. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because if you're... If if if, if Heimdall is the thing you... Like, name it after Heimdall. Yes. As a Norse god. Because also, Idris Elba's acting career... Heimdall is not It's his, a very minor part. It's not his, like, strongest work, you know? I mean, he's great, sure. But, yeah. like... My God, don't pick that. Yeah. Do you want to hear... I mean, here's an example of someone dropping the ball even more. Pop star Adam Ant has a... It's not even going to be an ant, is it? Trilobite. Oh, my God. Forteapsis adamanti. No. Is a trilobite. No. But to restore your faith, Tobey Maguire does have a spider and a spider crab named after him. Okay. Abba also have a spider named after them. Abba. Abba. <laughs> okay. It's it's highs and lows on these on these examples. Abba, as a group between them, had mm. eight legs. Oh, you might have done more justification than the scientists ever. I think you're you're giving them far too much credit. George Bush, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld. All have beetles named after them. Oh, where are those beetles found? <laughs> I'm not sure, actually. Uh, as does Kate Winslet. Okay. John Cleese has got a lemur. For things like lemurs and things, there's not many of them left to name. Yeah. I don't think we should be dropping the ball when it comes to naming these kind <laughs> yeah. of things. Yeah. Okay. Now, the next one, Hylocertus Seth MacFarlanei is a beautiful frog found on an Ecuadorian mountain only last year. And it's this beautiful... It's a stunning thing, and it's called McFarlane's Frog, after actor, voiceover artist, creator of Family Guy, Seth McFarlane. Also in Ecuador, you've got Prince Charles Stream Frog, named in 2008. You get the picture, 
okay? What I'm trying to show is the justification for a lot of these names are pretty weak. And I get that using some of these names might raise the profile of your species. And when you're sat there and you've named 300 wasps and no one gives a shit, by calling them James May, Jeremy Clarkson, and Richard Hammond, yeah. you might get a little BuzzFeed article about it or something like that. Or two guys talking about it on a podcast. Or two guys. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Falling right into their trap. Uh. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Yes, but, but, yeah. but my point is that for me, and this is why I wanted to check, see whether it was a personal thing. And if you're listening, please do. You know, if you've got any thoughts, send them to us. Because to me, naming species that evolved over millions and millions of years as just a way of honoring your favorite chat show host, who might not even care much about nature, might not even know that this animal exists, to me, that is like massively devaluing of. The sanctity of the natural world. Okay, I'm going to play some devil's advocate. Do it. Ness here. Please. Some of your points just now, yep. very strongly agree with. Mm-hmm. In as much as if you've found a lemur, there's yep. not many left. Yeah. So put some effort in. <laughs> right, yep. I think it gets weird when you're in the invertebrate world mm-hmm. because there's a lot There's a lot of flies. <laughs> like, it's true, there is a lot of flies. There's a lot of flies. If I know one thing about flies, it's that... They are many. And that's why, as I was scrolling through, a lot of the ones that were like random names, yeah, wasps, yeah. a lot of wasps. yeah, uh, like, And we're talking, you know, when, when you think of wasps, you might think the black and yellow ones that fly around stinging you, but there are an infinite amount of wasps, like small parasitic ones, ones that feed on rotting fruit. There's all sorts. There are a massive, vast, very diverse group of insects. Yes, but, and I guess you could call them after the place they are found, Maybe. Yeah. But what I'm kind of thinking is you're saying if it has evolved for many millions of years, it should be treated with a level of dignity and respect in its naming to honour, frankly, the time and effort it's putting into being here. (laughs) Yeah, like, yeah, you know, don't name it after Abbott. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I guess my counter to that is the white-faced whistling duck. Oh, yeah. Which... Didn't have a lot of thought put into its name either, because that's a duck which some scientists found, and they just went, what's it do? Whistle. What's it look like? White face. Yeah. What is it? Duck. Yeah. Strung that all together. Yeah. White face whistling duck. And I, there's only so many words. There's okay. only so many words. Yeah. yeah. So if we've named, let's say, 10,000 wasps. <laughs> <laughs> How different yeah. is Wasp 10,001 yeah. that isn't going to become a sort of eight-word yeah. eight name you, that it's like black stripe, one-eyed, left-wing, slightly bent Wasp? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's valid points. So, in a sense, you may as well just be like, f- maybe they all hate the people they named it after. <laughs> you know, maybe they can't stand Colbert whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I think they're pretty fair points. Mm. Um, let me tell you one that really got me, yeah. though, is this one. There's a genus of gibbons, actual primates. The genus of gibbons is called the hulock gibbons. Okay. Now, okay. the hulock gibbons, that's not the, that's not the, the name that I'm honing okay. in on here. Yeah. Uh, the word hulock is related to, I believe, the native language where they're found. So far, everything's coming in above board. Yeah. So there's three species in the genus of hulock gibbons. The... Eastern Hulot Gibbon. God. The Western Hulot Gibbon. Oh, no. And as of 2017, the Skywalker Hulot Gibbon. (laughs) The Skywalker Hulot Gibbon. (laughs) Named after Luke Skywalker because the scientists who named it were fans of Star Wars. Oh, that's taking the piss. A Gibbon. Uh, We're not going to find many more of them. There are only 150 of them left. And this is what we call them. That's not okay. Nah. Their scientific species name, Hulok Changing, is derived from movement through heaven, given the way that they move through the trees, which is really nice. But then they called it, they gave its actual common name, the Skywalker Hulok Gibbon. That was the one that, that was the one that like made it onto the how many geese list in my phone that sparked the whole thing. Oh, right, okay. Because I was like, we, we, we can't let them get away with this. Who are they? Where do we and find then, them? How do we I, contact them? And then I delved into this. Does Mark Hamill know? I'm sure he must do. 
But it's one of those things that, like, you know, the celebrities know and they go, oh, yeah, I'm very, very honoured. And then they forget about it. You see them being asked by chat show hosts, oh, yeah, you've got a lizard named after you. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've got, like, four things named after me. And yeah, you could name animals after normal people that care a lot more about those animals than Metallica. I've found Mark Hamill's response Ooh, okay. to the news. Yeah. Uh, I almost feel like he's coming from where we're coming from. <laughs> so proud of this. First, the Pez dispenser, <laughs> then the underoos and US postage stamp. Now this. Hashtag Jungle Jedi. Hashtag Gorilla My Dreams. Hashtag Simeon Skywalker. <laughs> it's not. It's not odd. Yeah. It's not odd. Yeah. But anyway, back to um, the naming of, of animals after actual people. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Because not only in my eyes does it devalue nature, it also, I think, can throw up a problem. A serious problem when it comes to naming animals after humans. Humans suck. Like, <laughs> to demonstrate this and to demonstrate how we can drag animals into our stupid little human world of our actions and consequences, I want to introduce you to Anophthalmus Hitleri. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. No. I'm just going to let that sit with you, listener. Was this named pre-1937? <laughs> A species of blind cave beetle found in about 15 humid caves in Slovenia that is named after the one and only Adolf Hitler. Yeah. It was named by Austrian collector Oskar Schiebel. Oscar, what are you doing? Who was sold a specimen of the then undocumented species in 1933. Now, at this point, Hitler had just become Chancellor of Germany. So, pre, you know, Hitler's villain arc. So, he named the beetle then, 1933. Hitler wrote him a letter showing his gratitude. Now, this beetle is obviously screaming to have its name changed. Like, any sensible person would be like, we cannot have an animal named after Hitler. But the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature states that the first name given to a species is its correct name, and it does not allow for a name to be invalidated due to it causing offence. President Thomas Pape says, it was not offensive when it was proposed, and it may not be offensive in 100 years from now. I would argue it probably would be. Yeah, I'm unsure. I, was, I wasn't necessarily in disagreement with Thomas's, but I don't... <laughs> Equally, then we got to that last bit, and I'm unsure what Thomas <laughs> thinks is going to happen in the next 100 years. <laughs> now, what's really interesting from this is its name is actually causing harm to the beetle itself, whose population is being reduced by Nazi memorabilia collectors who want one for their collection. How big is the Nazi beetle collecting community? Big enough that people are, like, going to these caves in Slovenia because they want in their collection, one of the Hitler Beetle. When I woke up this morning, that's not a Venn diagram I thought we'd be discussing. <laughs> Welcome to How Many Geese. If this is your first episode, this is quite often what it's like. <laughs> well, less Nazi. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot less Nazi, yeah. Now, this, this is my point, right? Yeah. Okay. We end up tying nature into really stupid human activities or evil human activities you know in the case of this like attenborough's got 50 species named after him what if it turns out he was running some kind of underground crime ring this whole time what if it turns out like abba have been smuggling cocaine in the bellies of dogs like there's <laughs> we don't know what people are going to do and then we've got animals stuck with these names that are all based on stupid human behaviors and things that we do and we can make the perception of animals, or in the case of the Hitler beetle, the conservation of animals potentially affected by names that we've given them because of people. And it's just tying these two worlds together that for me, I would much rather be kept separate. I want nature to do its thing and I don't want it to have any of our stupid problematic human activities related to it. And it's the fact it's still ongoing. It's not like we learnt from our mistakes. It's not like the Hitler beetle was the last one and from that moment we were like, actually, maybe we shouldn't name things after you know, popular figures. We're still doing it constantly with loads and loads and loads. And there are some people that are really pushing back on this. 
So in 2018, American ornithologist Robert Driver filed a proposal to the North American Nomenclature Committee requesting that they change the English name of a little bunting-type bird called McCown's Longspur. Now, remember the case of the Hitler beetle. The scientific name can't be changed if it wasn't problematic at the time. When this species was named, it wasn't. But McCown was named after John Porter McCown, a general in the Confederate Army during the American Civil War. Mm. So now, a lot of names, there are lots of birds that are named after people, Blythe's reed warbler, Cassin's sparrow, Hume's leaf warbler, Pallas's sand grouse, whatever. And we may now look back on some of these people and maybe they weren't the best people, you know, lots of slave owners, lots of all sorts of things that back in the day were much more acceptable than they might be now. So when he proposed, Robert Driver, that we change the name of McCown's Longspur, this was initially overwhelmingly rejected by the board, who uh, hold the power on the name-changing things. But it resurfaced in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And on July 24, 2020, McCown's Longspur became officially known as Thick-Billed Longspur. Now, its scientific name is still the same. It's still whatever McCownii, because... As it said, that can't be changed. But we can change. One of the ways around it might be to change the common names yep. of some of these things. So we can at least do away with that. So now there's a whole American campaign set up called Bird Names for Birds, which aims to get rid of bird names that are named after people, at least in the common name. Bird Names for Birds it sounds like we're going to go down like a Pokemon route and name them after the noise they make. And it's going to be like... It would be better if they did. Ah! <laughs> hey, I just go into the park. I'm going to feed the... And maybe the <laughs> don't give them bread. <laughs> Prefer peas. Hey, we got things like cuckoos. We got kitty wakes. We got all sorts yeah. of things named after the way they sound. Um, but yeah, as many species were being named when colonialism and slavery were rife, uh, a lot of these people maybe aren't the nicest people. So there are people trying to you know push back on that. So that is my little delve into names of animals that are named after people. It's something that's been, the more I read about it, the more I'm like, or the more I see about it, the more I see a, an animal being named after a celebrity, McFarlane's frog or the Hulock gibbon, the Skywalker gibbon, the more I'm like, this, is, this has got to stop. This has got to stop, guys. But it's still going on. It's still very, very rife. So I just wanted to get my thoughts out there. Like I say, I'm not sure if it was a topic or a rant, but that's today's episode of How Many Geese. <laughs> It's time for that part of the show where we check in on the bird world with our friends Birder, the bird watching app, in our segment, which this week, Jack, is called Birder to be safe than sorry. Oh, good God. <laughs> That's right. Um, very big thank you to Birder and the team there for sponsoring the show. If this is your first episode with us, if you haven't heard of the app before, Bird is a fantastic new bird watching app that gets you out and about, gets you into nature, gets you seeing the world, meeting people, and finding new nature hotspots, new bird watching areas, and near you. Yeah, um, it's just a really great social platform for all things bird. Looking for where they are, learning about them, sharing pictures, videos, meeting people, all the things you've just said, yeah. And it has got a database of birds built in there, which can help you work out what you may have seen, but also gives you a little fact file on each bird, shows you their distribution map, and lets you know some cool facts about whatever it is you may have seen. So this week, we are jumping over the Atlantic Ocean to the eastern coast of the United States to check in on your friend and mine's the Clapper Rail. A friend of everybody, the Clapper Rail. Yeah, now the Clapper... Round of applause. <laughs> Paul. The clapper rail. Exactly. Uh, named so because of the sound that it makes when it's watched a nice tennis match. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you went there because I was going to jump in with when it's at the opera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a very, very secretive bird to see as many, many rails are. So if you do get a chance to see one, well, feel privileged basically mm. because these are normally out skulking around estuary areas, mangrovey areas, swampy areas where the tide is moving in and out. And like I said, Birda will help you and let you know some fun, cool facts about what you've seen. I didn't have a clue about this at all. But clapper rails living in this uh, estuarine intertidal zone have a special gland that allows them to be able to drink seawater. Now I'm going to jump in very quickly and just say to the clapper rail, not 
that impressive mm. because like penguins they can yeah and yeah. surely many other seabirds seabirds yeah seabirds will excrete it through i mean some birds will things like fulmars uh and petrels and things can sneeze out salt yeah and basically get it from the fish or whatever that they're eating and sneeze it out however and i don't want you know I don't want you to think that Birder's not got facts because Birder keeps giving facts because the next one, I think, hats off to the clapper rail because their eggs can survive being submerged in water during high tide. That is mad. That is mad. <laughs> like, just fully under salt water. That's just, just pickled. Because of- <laughs> there's literally a preservation technique in cooking and these eggs are just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, because... Uh, even when they're in the eggs, what we know about birds' eggs is they still have to have porous shells so the embryo yeah. inside can breathe. Yeah. So, a mate, yeah, really, really cool. It is mad that they can do that. And then when they're out of the egg, the parents can carry the chicks on their back to help them through high tides, which is very lovely. Again, sneaking around the mangrove swamps. And when the brood get to a certain age, um, the parents will split the brood in half and each parent will look after half the brood. Oh, cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. So... Round of applause for the clapper rail. But if you are in the States on the East Coast, you can use the app to check out where they've been seen. And we can let you know that they've recently been seen on Birda at St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge in Florida. Very cool. Yeah. Lots of other things to see in Florida. Yep. Lots of the man animals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mind the pythons, clapper rails. (laughs) But you can find all this information on the Birder app using the species guide, the locations feature. So, thank you very much to Birder. Check out the app, get outside, get bird watching, and on with the show. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Iona, and it is the wrinkle-faced bat. Let's get to know our foe. Found in various countries in and around Central America, it's a medium-sized bat with a weight of about 17 grams. As its name suggests, the most recognisable feature about this bat is its face, where convoluted outgrowths of folds and flaps of skin are so extreme that in some pictures, it looks like its face is just straight up melting. Males have additional skin folds that can almost completely cover their face and contain scent glands. It's the only member of the Centurio genus, and its full scientific name, Centurio senex, was given because it was thought that the bat looked like it had the face of a 100-year-old man. It's a fruit-eating bat that prefers to eat soft, squishy fruits, but their skulls are extremely short and wide, which is thought to allow them to produce a bite force of up to 20% stronger than other bats of a similar size. The theory here is that it lets them eat harder fruit in times where soft fruit is in short supply. So, Roddy Shaw, how many wrinkle-faced bats are too many wrinkle-faced bats? Man, these things are corrupted goblins of the night. (laughs) They're so wild, aren't they? I mean, I've got them here. I This is also entering the incredibly, well, I'm going to say deluxe category. I don't know. But this is one of the few things that I've seen. In in the wild. In the wild. In the flesh. I've seen, I've, I've witnessed this before. We've gone toe to toe. Uh, of course, then it was very amicable. Um, <laughs> we talk about loads of animals on here. And I don't know if people necessarily always check them out to get the visual accompaniment but 100% check this bat out because it is they just look weird I mean this one this picture here I've got the it's like its face has sort of imploded yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but okay I didn't know though that they had a stronger than normal bite or that they were yeah do we know why they've got the folds I uh, think I've heard something, but I want to see if it's come no, up. No, I, did, I didn't find anything about that. I think I heard it, like, directs the juices to their mouth or when okay. they're eating the fruit. I think there's some connection there yeah. that all the folds catch all the fruit juice. Yeah, like a child's bib. Sort of, but maybe I'm kind of thinking in a very... If this, this is a huge hot take from me mm-hmm. based on absolutely nothing out there in the world of science but if they have evolved this stronger head to get into harder fruit 
It yep. suggests to me that they're eating the fruit before it's ripe. Well, so they, they always prefer softer fruits, but have evolved this strong bite, 20% stronger than other bats of a similar size. The theory being that that allows them to eat harder fruit in times that soft fruit is in short supply. Right. So it's like a fail-safe. Following that, mm-hmm. harder fruit, if the fruit isn't ripe, it's going to have fewer sugars in it. Mm-hmm. And so if you were a bat, very high energy, you probably like you want a decent amount of sugar in your diet, maybe. If the wrinkles do catch the juice, maybe it's a way of ensuring that you Maximum. don't miss out on any possible nutrient yeah. or any juice or any bit of sugar. That's my theory based on a hot take of a lot of nonsense. But there we go. Kind if of, you're a bat scientist yeah. and can confirm that the wrinkle-faced bat is after maximum juice, yeah. then <laughs> please do get in touch. Okay, and now we've entered the... Now we've brought the phrase maximum juice. <laughs> That's why they're after me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're the maximum juice bat. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of you. <laughs> um, okay. 17 grams. 17 grams. That yeah. is small. And they're a medium-sized bat, so, you know, where you've seen them. This is a kind of death-by-a-thousand-cut situation, isn't yeah. it? There's no there's no one bat taking me out, but... But it has to be, if we're going from the bite as the main yeah. uh, thing, it has to be 20% less bats than any other medium-sized bat because they've got a 20% stronger bite. <laughs> But have I done any other medium-sized bat? I don't think I have. <laughs> no. But just thinking, if you're just working it out on generic bat-based arithmetic, yeah. you need to take into account that they are 20% stronger. That's true. Factor <laughs> that into your calculations. <laughs> so all calculations have to consider the 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 fathead factor. Yeah. The FHF. <laughs> the FHF of bat combat. Well, now I don't. Where's the Where's the Where would the fight take place? Where did you see them? Honduras. Mm-hmm. So I've just tried to find out how big their colonies are. Can't mm-hmm. find that, but I did find on Bat Conservation International a line saying the many folds and wrinkles on their lips and jaws help filter the fruit juice when they are feeding, Whoa. and they can temporarily store fruit pulp in their mouth. That's cool. Bosh. Yeah. Nailed that one. Yeah. Pat on the back there for me. Um, anyway. I feel like it's got to be a fruit-based arena. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least a juice-based arena, like a Ribena factory. Is that the holy grail for the wrinkle-faced bat? It's just do away with the fruit. Just get the pure juice. The pure, straight for the juice. They just absolutely get off their tits on orange juice. But what's more juice than juice? Ribena. Yeah. Because it's concentrate. Oh, my God. God, it's like crack for wrinkle-faced bats. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Ribena is 100% more juice than juice. Yeah. 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 And The most juice that ever juiced. And exactly. There's there's juice percentages <laughs> flying around here. There's bat percentages flying around here. This is the, the, the most mats-heavy combat we've ever had. We've got to carry the juice factor into the bat strength factor. If you divide the juice percentage by the bat strength... I know. Carry the wrinkle... <laughs> Okay. I think, yeah, the wrinkle-faced bat is just incredibly jealous of the power that we have in our cupboards, you know? Yeah. That's all they've ever wanted. Yeah. It's just the neat juice. (laughs) But we've taken that, and then we've turned it up, and we turned it up to 11. I know. Yeah. A wrinkle-faced bat couldn't comprehend Ribena. No. Yeah. It would just (laughs) blow its mind. I know. And it it would never be able to eat a banana again. Well, imagine going back to, to, to chewing on an unripe nut or whatever they're Mango. having exactly before just sort of hardened yeah barely even pulp in the knowledge that ribena exists yeah so i'm fighting them at the ribena factory mm-hmm. because i actually really do like ribena so i'm going to defend ribena i'm here on ribena's honor <laughs> to fend off these bats do you think the ribena factory has any kind of well it's a factory right so it's gonna have big factory things i'm seeing like those turbines because mm-hmm. i want i want stuff to blow bats away okay because i reckon irrespective of their colony size yeah once word gets out oh. in the wrinkle faced bat circles about ribena 
they are all coming over the Atlantic. Yeah. There, there's nothing left for them yeah. in the neotropics. <laughs> Why stay in Central America in the knowledge that, you know, Derbyshire has Ribena? <laughs> <laughs> the number of wrinkle-faced bats coming over the Atlantic could be picked up by NASA. <laughs> it's on weather radar. Yeah, there's people on the ISS looking down, wondering if there's been an oil spill moving at speed <laughs> towards the Canaries. But in fact, it's every wrinkle-faced bat in Colombia. Um, the Ribena factory is going to have some kind of very big blender because they're going to have to blend yeah. the the berries. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm not going to blend bats. Mm -hmm. God, no. no. But a blender is in the family of spinny technology. <laughs> If we're, if we're boxing off... It's in, in the same evolutionary tree as the propellers on helicopters. Exactly. And, exactly. Blenders yeah. are just propellers in a jar. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've said it for years. <laughs> so I'm going to get all the big blenders at the Ribena factory. Yeah. Because this cloud can be tracked by NASA... You know when they're coming. I know when they're coming. So I've got maybe more prep time than any other fight yeah. we've had to date. Mm -hmm. I get all of the big Ribena blenders. Yeah. The cloud of bats uh -huh. is coming across the Atlantic. ISS, NASA, reports on news, everyone. It's like in the disaster movies where they're like, what's this mysterious object over Johannesburg? Yeah. But I know. I know it's the wrinkled face bats. Okay, they're coming. I need to use Ribena's tech. It's the only... Th 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 there's, there's no possible option of steering them off or trapping them here or having them here. They're going there, right? Each year in Britain, around 14 billion blackcurrants are harvested. Wow. Ribena takes up 90% of Britain's blackcurrant production. Wow. So Ribena and the, the family of Spinitech therein yeah. is able to cope with 13, 12, 12.6 billion blackcurrants a year. Oh, my word. Okay. Now... <laughs> Here comes the abacus. Get the abacus out. The fright in Roddy's eyes when he just sort of realised what he had to do next. <laughs> oh, maybe we just work it out. Is it, but work it out yourself, listener. <laughs> However much, because we couldn't work out how much a black current weighs, but the maths is. Take 12.6 billion black currents, turn that into a weight, divide that weight by 17 grams, that gives you the equivalent number of bats in black currents that Ribena processes. Then take off 20% of that because of the bite force of the wrinkle-faced bat. So it's a very simple... It's a very simple 12.6 billion black currents weight in bats at an 80% factor accommodating for the stronger bite force. That's how many wrinkle-faced bats I could take in a fight. This question comes to us from Benji underscore Matt on Instagram. Uh, Benji Matt asks... Which animal would make the best dance partner? Ooh, okay. What kind of dance? Unclear, but... Unclear. Right. My favourite kind yeah. <laughs> of structure. Exactly. This cart is firmly <laughs> blanche. <laughs> okay. So, I think... First of all, let's get the question out of the way. Does it have to be human size? Or can we scale up, scale down... I think we can scale up or... Yeah, yep. we, yeah because... Look, uh, it's I'm, a narrow... I'm at risk of stepping on toes anyway. So <laughs> if those toes are millimetres... Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, okay. Yeah. So we're not just talking about, yeah, human-sized animals. No. Because yeah. I don't want to particularly dance with a crocodile. Yeah. For example, on its back legs, holding exactly. its little arms. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so... In a slow waltz. <laughs> so immediately, birds yep. do dance. Like, yep. lots of them dance. They have all sorts of um, courtship displays, things like the Birds of Paradise do quite elaborate dances. Yep. Um, Great Crested Grebes do the weed dance, where they yes. get up with their beaks and they yes. 
They do a nice little sort of synchronized dance together. Very lovely. Dance with prop. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, they get quite creative with it. So I think there's plenty of birds that could be chosen from. And I think the route that we would have to go down, looking at it from a natural, uh, uh, from a yeah biology point of view, is courtship displays. Well, it's basically what dancing it. Like, yeah. It is, mm. you know. You're only doing it show off. Yeah. That's all you're doing it. You're only doing it to communicate the fitness of your genes. Yeah. And once you know that, you'll never watch Strictly Come Dancing the same way again. <laughs> There's a reason they call it the Strictly Curse. Oh. Mm. Don't they just. And mm. um, for anyone listening not in the UK, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, i gone a very different way. Okay. Cockroach. Why? Because <laughs> you'll be it, able to dance till the end of time. Yeah, exactly. My love will last beyond the nuclear Armageddon. Aren't they named after a dance? I have no idea. Isn't that La Cucaracha? And that's what the name Cockroach comes from. I thought I so. have no idea. You, you're going to have to enlighten me. I was thinking they were the only... I was thinking they are... Because I thought the Cucaracha was a dance or something that... Uh, maybe not a dance, but a song or something existing mm. in Mexico. And I thought they were named after that. But as I'm talking now, I'm really worried that the dance or the song is named after the cockroach. I mean, still, like... But it's still the only... Like, it's... There's no... We don't dance the wolf. Uh, we do dance the flamenco. Okay, so... I don't know if that's a thing. And flamingos do dance. Flamingos do amazing choreographed dances where there's... Um, so particularly, I think it's a lake up in the Andes or somewhere where you get all the flamingos massed together and then they all gather together in a big group and they sort of march down the salt lakes all twisting their heads side by side. Yep, yep. Very okay. So starting with La Cucaracha, uh-huh. the origins of La Cucaracha are obscure. <laughs> Good start to this. So it, okay, no, the song is named after the cockroach. La Cucaracha is a popular Mexican folk song about a cockroach who cannot walk. That being the case, possibly the worst... <laughs> <laughs> Choice of a dance partner. The worst avenue of a dance partner. I'm not getting dance in these lyrics. Uh, translation of the first one. From the sideburns of a moor, I must make a broom to sweep the quarters of the Spanish infantry. Oh, the cockroach, the cockroach can't walk anymore because it doesn't have, because it's lacking marijuana to smoke. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> the cockroach just died. They are taking it to be buried among four buzzards and a sacristan's mouse. And a sacristan is someone connected to the church. So, okay, I'd like to um, now look at the flamenco because that last link worked out so well for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got here from our friends at the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust. Yep. Uh, the word flamingo itself is thought to have originated in the 1560s from either the Portuguese or Spanish word flamengo, which means flame. Ooh. In the modern day versions of these languages, this is flamenco, which sounds like the flamboyant dancing of the Iberian region. While the precise reason for the naming of the flamenco dance is lost to the mists of time, there is a theory that flamenco, meaning flame, relates to fiery and passionate behaviour. So it might be, once again, a bit of a coincidence that they are linked together. It's a much nicer, stronger, fiery link than a cockroach that got too high, lost its legs and can't walk. That's not my dance partner. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to dance with the flamingo. I'd like to dance the flamenco. Yes, yeah, I like the flamingo one. Yeah, and they do they do a great dance and they all get involved. So a bit like uh, it's almost like a Kaylee with a flamingo because they all you know they're all getting involved. You're not like on your own, right? Yeah, you know it's not like uh, it's because if it's just you two, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on just with a grebe. Yep, there's a lot of pressure with just you and a grebe or cranes or something like that to get it right. If a bird's a paradise, yep. the females don't dance at all. It's just the males that are doing the dancing. So there's a lot of pressure on them. Yep. Uh, whereas the flamingos, when they all get together on that big lake and they all march across it doing their little head twisty thing, you know, it's a big communal thing. I tell you what's something as well that we didn't actually think here is it's talking about best dance partner. For mm. example, the grebes, definite partners dance. But the birds of paradise, isn't it just the male yeah, yeah. and the female is just standing? Judging. Exactly. Yeah. So flamingos, it's 
male and females doing the whole thing together? I think so, yeah. And and the thing, because there's so many of them, I don't think that once you're finished, you're going to be expected to have sex with them, which is <laughs> is what's going to happen. If you're dancing with a great crested grebe, yeah. that's forming some pretty strong pair bonds, yeah. which is only leading one way. Okay. Whereas the flamingos, when they all get together, I mean, obviously it, was, it'll, it is all linked to some courtship thing. Yeah. But, you know, you can sort of, I think like, you could probably just sneak off away from that at the end. Okay. Any non-bird entries? Well, what other animals? Uh... I had peacock jumping spiders. Yeah. But again, I think that's just the male doing a thing and the female judges. Yeah. But was... if anyone hasn't seen them, they're teeny tiny. I think they're like a centimeter long i think they're very very small um and their abdomen kind of flips up and it's got loads of colors and they twitch their legs and it's very very cute like if you if if you if you know someone who's like oh i hate spiders they're disgusting blah, 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 i would hazard a guess that if you showed them videos of peacock jumping spiders having a dance it would show them a different side to spiders mm. now they may still get eaten after sex i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> yeah and this is this is i think where the insects, I don't know whether there are many insects that dance male and female together or whether it's just a male showing off sort of thing. So mm. I was also thinking the dance of the mayfly, but that's also the males. Oh. Um, butterflies. Yep. I know they have courtship flights, but I mean, we're not going to be, we're not going to be great at courtship flight, are we? It's not going to be a great dance partner mm. if it's like up in the sky. You could you could get a little biplane, yeah. <laughs> do some loop-de-loops with it, or get strapped to the outside of a plane with your goggles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what other things? Dance of the Adders, but that's just wrestling. That's just two males wrestling. Are there any mammals other than us? Like, there's definite displays in, you know, you yeah. get like sheep butting heads and all of that kind of... Yeah, but that's... But that's that, not a dance. That, yeah, that, that's very much like fighting off the competition. I guess, yeah, but I guess that's what I mean. Like, there's a lot of... Ritual, ritualistic, yes. yeah, behaviour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Mammals. I, I think the birds have got the monopoly on there. I think birds do. On the courtshiping where it's both, where, it's, where they're partners. I think that's the key thing. Yeah. Is where they're not just showing off. So, like, you know, a peacock wouldn't be great. Yeah. Because it's just, it's not even really doing anything. It's just fanning its big tail. Yeah. But I think flamingos, cranes, grebes, they're all in. Followed by the legless cockroach that got too high. Hello, listener. We're soon approaching the end of our regularly scheduled episodes for this season of How Many Geese, with our last episode being next week. But I'm here to tell you to fear not, because we're not going to let you go cold goose. We're going to be back over the summer with a few special episodes dotted around every couple of weeks to keep you going. Keep sharing, keep getting involved, and keep making sure to download that free Birder app. And we will see you right back here next Tuesday.